I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. I'm Marty West, Editor-in-Chief of Education Next, and my guest today is Ulrich Bozer, Senior Fellow at the Center for American Progress and the author of the new book, Learn Better. You could find a review of that book in the August issue of EdNext and online now at educationnext.org. And I'm delighted to have the chance to discuss it with him today. Ulrich, welcome to the EdNext podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Now, this is not a book about education policy per se. Rather, it's closer to a self-help guide for learners and educators of all ages aimed at helping readers become, as the subtitle puts it, expert in just about anything. And it's also very clearly not a book that you tossed off overnight. As Kevin Carey writes on the book jacket, it's more like the project of a lifetime. But you explain that your interest in the science of learning was rekindled by an email you received while working on a policy report for the Center for American Progress. I wonder if you'd get us started by sharing that story. Yeah, so many years ago, or though sometimes it feels like just yesterday, we did a project looking at the productivity of schools. And I think for people who really follow the education debate, this answer here isn't necessarily surprising, but when you start running the numbers on the relationship between achievement and spending, it's not entirely clear that increased money causes increased achievement. And, you know, there's some people who've, you know, notably and successfully, you know, developed whole careers uh, on this idea, like Rick Hanyshek, who's one of the first to really dig into it. And for me, what happened is, you know, we were really digging through the data. We did all types of adjustments. And it was really surprising to me when that data came uh, in to see that there was uh, no relationship. Again, we just found what, what Rick Hanyshek originally found. Not only that, in a couple of states like Texas, we were able to show that there was a negative relationship. Now, I'm not arguing that, you know, money doesn't equal, um, you know, better outcomes. You know, really, uh, this comes to in some ways, a common sense notion that how money is spent uh, makes a bigger, you know, difference than anything else. But in my mind, it really was sort of like, so what do we really care about schools, right? What are the things that we can do to uh, make interventions that, that really work? And I became really fascinated with the science of learning, some of the uh, things that have been written about a long time in sort of the memory space, uh, popularized by some researchers by Dan Willingham, and uh, decided to write a book on it, partially because it, it fascinated me and, and partially because I think it has a, a real um, important and crucial impact on uh, education policy debates. And the science of learning, what researchers have shown us in recent decades about how humans of all ages learning is actually remarkably absent from a lot of conversations around education policy. So you're mainly a policy researcher and you turn to this evidence. What have we been missing? Yeah, I think there's some very sort of basic ideas that are remarkably not part of the uh, education policy debate. Look, at a very high level, I think what's fascinating is that 
you know, in the newspapers, in the media, in the public discourse, really people are debating policy. And, you know, for, for policy wonks such as myself and, and you, you know, it's, it's fascinating that people are willing to spend so much time in ink saying, you know, are charters good or charters bad or vouchers good or vouchers bad? Uh, should school boards be, you know, run by the mayor or not? But it's remarkable to me that we're not having debates about, you know, what Kids should actually be sort of learning each day what are the better ways for teacher to engage those uh, students. And when we have those debates, they're very sort of cursory, right? It's like some people are like all for project-based learning or it's, you know, just sort of drill and practice when there's so much real important nuance there and some very basic ideas in this, this research, um, you know, hasn't really been, you know, filtered into to schools. Uh, I'd love to give an example, if I may. Absolutely. So there's a very basic idea called interleaving or, or kind of mixing up your uh, learning. Uh, principles have been around in the, in the education space for, uh, excuse me, in this, in this uh, science of learning space for, for years. And I'm going to ask you a question. Okay, Let, let's say, Marty, you want to get better at playing the piano. And would you, if you're practicing the piano, do, and you have sort of, you know, practice sessions on, on three subsequent days, would you do all Bach on one day, all uh, Mozart on one day, uh, and then all Beethoven on the next day? Or in each practice session, would you, would you mix it up? What, what would you do? I'm not sure what I would have done a week ago, but I think uh, uh, having read your book, I think I would go in the direction of uh, mixing it up. Mixing up is, is the, you know, correct correct answer here. Um, and there's just like a ton of research on this idea. It, it cuts across all sorts of subject matters, right, from uh, music. They've also done study with women basketball players. They've done studies with higher uh, order, you know, uh, with, with uh, math in, in middle school years. And that mixing it up produces uh, better, you know, uh, better learning. And there are a couple of reasons of it. One is just, you know, it makes people get out of their um, – you know, automatic thinking, right, that, you know, like many of us, you've had this experience where things become routine, and, and if you mix it up, you do a little Mozart, a little Beethoven, you're thinking a little bit more uh, richly. Uh, it also makes you think a little bit more about kind of deeper details, you know, what makes Mozart and Beethoven, you know, different, for an example. But, uh, you know, I have a, a daughter in school. She's, um, you know, eight. She brings home her math worksheets, and without fail, you know, there, she does all the fives in one week and all the sixes on another week. There's so many examples where in schools we are blocking learning, right? We're doing it so that uh, students are practicing all their Mozart in one practice session when there is just so much research on this and idea of, of the value of, of mixing it up. And, you know, you joked at the, the front that it is a bit of a self-help book. And, you know, I'm going to carry that mantle, that mantle uh, proudly because, you know, ultimately learning is something that we do every day. And these values of kind of mixing it up or being more active in your learning, you know, are powerful whether you're reading a journal article or uh, trying to advocate for, for better schools. Yeah, and I didn't mean to be dismissive by referring to it to a, as a self-help guide at all. In fact, to illustrate the example that you just gave, I last night shuffled up my son's flashcards for multiplication tables uh, specifically because of the advice in the book. So, um, you know, uh, I, I consider that high praise. 
Um, uh, and and, I, and I, as I said, I, I jumped in early to say that I, I thought it was a compliment. But more than that, the, the bigger compliment is to know that people are actually, you know, taking some uh, steps on this. So, you know, uh, I'm actually, you know, thrilled to hear that, that you're mixing it up uh, for your child as well. You know, there's this other principle that I think um, is really, and, and I've started to, to do this in my, uh, you know, own life. Uh, so very quickly, you know, there's this idea called spacing, right? That this idea that the more that you space out your learning, uh, the more effective it it is, and in all sorts of ways, though we we cram learning. And the basic idea here is is something that comes uh, out of the memory research. It's existed uh, for centuries. Literally goes back to a, a German psychologist, Hermann Ebbinghaus, who showed that people forget. They forget at a very regular rate. And the more that you spread out your learning, that you revisit an idea, the more that you uh, learn. And you know. Tons of studies have been done on this that even, you know, the size of flashcards, excuse me, the size of a stack of flashcards can have an impact because it does more to spread out your learning. And in my house, um, you know, we've started to do homework uh, on Sundays instead of Wednesdays because it's, you know, another way to, to spread out learning. Uh, it's sort of the opposite of cramming. And, and I'm going to admit, Marty, that my, you know, parent stock goes down when I push my kids to do homework on the weekends. But I'm like, look, you do the same amount of work, but you're going to know more, right? Like, I'm allowing you actually need you know, more time to you know, play and do better in school, but uh, they don't believe me. And you're back to the theme then of efficiency or productivity of learning. <laughs> right. That that might that might be the the other problem. But look, I mean, why does you know uh, productivity or, or efficiency matter? Right? It's because we actually want to get stuff done. Right? We're not. Um, you know, right? We have this term sort of busy work. Uh, we're we're learning because we want to use these skills or knowledge in, in new ways. Right? That's the the end goal here. Now, both of us have mentioned flashcards, and that brings up the role of factual knowledge. So. It's commonplace these days to point out that virtually any facts you might want to know are readily available online. You just Google it. And you argue that the technology of the digital age has, in fact, changed what we need out of schools. You're skeptical of what you call rote memorization, but you don't dismiss the value of factual recall altogether. So where exactly do you come down on this? What do students need to memorize and what can they Google? Yeah, so I would differentiate between rote and memorization, but uh, let's just sort of take it at a very high level, right? I mean, what's ultimately important is you want to be able to learn something and use it in different ways, right? So if you learn how to, even something like very basic, right? You want to learn how to change a tire, but you don't want to just change it on your own car. You want to be able to change it, you know, if your girlfriend's car breaks down, if you get a new car, right? So you don't want to just have like the, the procedure, right? You also just want to be able to apply it kind of, you know, flexibly and, and, and in new ways. And to do that, right, you need to have basic background knowledge. This has been the argument of, you know, E.D. Hirsch. This has been the argument of, of Dan Willingham. My favorite way to, you know, uh, give an example of this, if I were to ask you something like, haben Sie heute Morgen gefrühstückt, which is uh, German for, did you eat breakfast this morning? You could Google each of those words, right? I mean, I imagine you're sitting in front of a computer. You could figure that out quite quickly. But it's going to be very hard for you to hold a conversation in German, um, you know, without totally embarrassing yourself unless you have some background knowledge. So I do think that we have a consensus from many, if not most of the researchers, that, you know, knowledge, right, straight facts um, 
are themselves uh, this sort of basic building block. Without the facts, uh, you're, it's impossible to do higher order thinking. That's true whether it's physics or or German. Uh, when I think of kind of road, it's just sort of you know this idea that if you have a single fact, it's very hard to use that fact um, you know in a fluent way. And so I think there's some other research. I'm happy to, to talk about it, but this idea you know that if you just know the the capital of of Kansas, you know that. That's an interesting fact, and, and it's a fact that could help you when you know you're, you're arguing politics or, or policy. But you know, ultimately, we want people to know relationships, uh, to know systems, and you know that's really where this higher order thinking that I think all of us want kids to ultimately learn matters. Now, a second theme that comes up repeatedly in the book is the role of social emotional learning. There's lots of interest in that topic currently among educators and policymakers trying to ensure that schools attend to students' social and emotional needs. There are also fears that this can sometimes come at the expense of academic content. How do you see this issue? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that the debate, like so many things in education, it's become, you know, very narrow. What, what I find fascinating about social and emotional learning isn't so much that it's this separate thing, but that social and emotional learning really is at the basic of, um, you know, any kind of academic understanding or, or knowledge. I mean, uh, another way to think about this idea is that, you know, we often think that kind of thought is different than emotion, right? That, you know, those two things are kind of separate things. But that's not actually true, right? I mean, we can actually think with our, our hands. Uh, our bodies are kind of key for any kind of type of reasoning. So uh, my favorite example of this is a study. I think this study is, is fascinating. So, Marty, if you're sitting in front of a computer right now and you were to give, you know, and, and you, let's imagine you had two of the exact same computers, right? So you have a MacBook in front of you and you have, you know, you have two MacBooks. They're the exact same MacBook, you know, produce exactly the same. And one MacBook you give the finger to, right? You, you make an aggressive gesture towards it. And a second MacBook, you just wave at it, right? You just kind of give it a, a friendly wave like you would, uh, you know, something that you, you see on the street. Uh, studies have shown that you will have a much more negative opinion of that first MacBook that you gave the, the finger to. Uh, so, you know, what's interesting about this isn't necessarily that you're giving your computer the finger. Uh, what's interesting is that your hand did the thinking, right? And not only did your hand do the thinking, but it, it really sort of shaped your rational thought. So, you know, what does this mean for how we learn? Uh, what does it mean for the role of social and emotional learning? You know, I would argue that, you know, we just have to understand that, you know, our bodies are key to thinking, that students need moments of reflection. They need to feel safe uh, in order to, you know, grasp higher level math, in order to engage in ideas around, you know, Russian history. So, uh, you know, I find the debates around social and emotional learning, you know, quite interesting. But to me, you know, if we want students to know and be able to do anything, you know, we, we need to take care of this aspect of, of learning. So you make a convincing case in the book and, and in this conversation that we now know much more than ever before about how we learn. At the same time, we're in a moment where our systems of schooling at all levels are clearly struggling to translate that knowledge into consistent success for students. This is actually one of the themes that Bob Pianta, the dean of the University of Virginia's Curry School of Education, raises in reviewing your book for Education Next. He says, if we've learned so much about learning, why aren't we smarter? Um, how do you explain this paradox? Is the problem simply a failure of researchers to communicate the science of learning, or 
Are the problems deeper or is the research maybe not as definitive and helpful in practical terms as it needs to be to uh, really make a difference? You know, I think that's a, a really important question, right? And if we care about the future of schooling, this is really the, the important rub. You know, I think there are a couple of reasons. You know, one, I would lay the blame at the foot of our education schools. Uh, we've seen some, you know, the, the IES uh, now about 10 years ago hired some of the biggest uh, names in uh, the learning sciences to put together a document for the you know, federal government that was like, what are the principles of, of learning sciences? And they mentioned a few of the things that I've talked about, the idea of spacing, the idea of interleaving. Uh, analogies is another really important uh, idea. And, um, you know, this is one of those documents that has remarkably shown no impact on our education schools. And, you know, what's interesting, I think, in my mind, is that our education schools have many of them turned into sort of um, – sort of really like sociology departments, um, when many of these principles really come out of the memory research, right? The debate about whether content knowledge matters is a, is a memory question. The idea of spacing is ultimately a matter of memory. The value of, of interleaving these very basic principles uh, come out of a, a different field, and it's, it's a field that uh, education, for all sorts of reasons, has been hesitant to, uh, to, to really uh, take up. You know, when we think about some of these principles, we have to understand that, you know, they're hard to, to implement. So one of my big arguments is that, you know, constructivism on the side of the students, right, that people need to actively construct their knowledge is really important. And so we see a ton of research on this. Richard Mayer, John Donlowski, um, this is sort of what we talk about when we talk about active learning. This is what we talk about when we hear something like the testing effect. This is why quizzing yourself is such an important way to learn. Um, and, you know, we really need to generate. But if you walk into so many colleges, right, you just see people lecturing uh, when we have so many technologies now, like quizzes, which could, you know, make that class uh, a lot more interactive. I'm going to admit that I'm going to be guilty, too, right? You know, there was recently I was preparing for a speech, and I kept rereading my notes, right? Uh, the much better, if, if I took active learning seriously, you know, I'd put my notes aside and really, you know, push myself to actually practice the, the, the um, you know, the speech itself, right? That is the more engaged kind of constructivist way to, to go. And I think third, you know, while we do have these principles of, of learning, right, they're not sort of, you know, end-all, be-alls. You know, we still need to understand that they're going to take place in different contexts, um, and they don't help us, you know, explain the nature of things that are complicated, whether it's, you know, fractions or, or gravity, right, that there is another level uh, below that where we need actual uh, expertise to explain these concepts. At least when you were preparing your speech, you didn't pull out a highlighter, another uh, technique that you uh, criticize in the in the book. I assume. Yeah, I mean the highlighter thing. I mean it's it's a it's a remarkable thing to me. I often work at a law school near my house because there's no Wi-Fi, you know, so it's just you know I get a lot of stuff done. And these are law school students. Not only do they bring in highlighters, they bring in you know multicolored highlighters, and you know these are dedicated students who've clearly shown some success. And it is remarkable to me that there's there's no evidence on on highlighters, right? Uh, there's very little evidence on uh, re rereading, very little evidence on underlying, and yet you know we see these 
these practices, you know, very common uh, in schools, whether it's, you know, fourth grade or tenth grade uh, or in our colleges, when we know the contrast, right, of, you know, explaining something to yourself, uh, quizzing yourself, ex you know, explaining something or teaching others, these uh, harder, admittedly harder forms of, of learning uh, are a lot more effective. Uh, yet, you know, people are basically like me, right? You want to take the easier way out, whether it's, you know, just, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, rereading your notes as you prepare for a speech. Yeah, rereading and highlighting is a lot easier than actively trying to develop your knowledge and skills, which really points back to the underlying issue of motivation, both motivation on the part of the students, but also on the part of educators who do need to do the hard work of mastering the principles that you're talking about and then actually figuring out how they apply to their own settings. Yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, we often, uh, whether, you know, you or I, we will, you know, geek out about issues of education policy, can have, you know, debates about the multiple funding formulas that sit within, you know, Title I. Um, but, you know, when you're trying to get other people interested or, or learning about something, right, you know, it's, it's better to go for depth, right? That's where you're going to get the real kind of richness of, of understanding, right? So I think, you know, whether we're talking about uh, K-12 schools, or, or higher ed or, you know, really uh, any other conversation with the people in the HR department, right? You just see people who, you know, s you know spread facts out there as opposed to really, um, you know, engaging them um, and, and really making people learn. Uh, but this principle, you know, of, of like learning is difficult is the same thing about the idea of interleaving, right? The reason that you should interleave is that it makes learning a, a little bit more harder. Uh, and as such, uh, there's this idea, uh, Bob York is the person who's um, really pushed it called desire difficulties. The, the more difficult you make learning, uh, the, the better it is. And this is a society-wide problem, but, you know, and a uh, problem specifically, I think, most in, in ed tech, where people love to say, you know, learning is going to be fun, you know, it's all a game. And I, I, I think this is just simply not true. I I'm not arguing that, you know, learning is supposed to be, um, you know, totally, you know, rote and, and boring, but I think we should do a better job. There was a Princeton professor who I thought put this idea well. He was a math professor, and, and he would tell people, you know, math isn't fun, um, but the reason, you know, because it's hard is what makes it actually fun. Uh, so, in other words, you know, embracing the, the struggle in a way and, and um, you know, that's true for, you know, whether you want to learn knitting or chemistry or, or diving. And step one in the set of uh, sort of the learning process that you lay out as the best way to develop expertise is value, right? Making sure that you are motivated to uh, engage in the content, presumably in a way that will um, uh, you'll lead you to exert the type of effortful practice that you're talking about being needed. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So I break down the book into a couple of kind of, you know, the chapters sort of uh, go through the, the learning processes as I see it, building on work uh, done by Barry Zimmerman and, and others. And, you know, basically saying that learning is this, you know, it's a process, it's a method, it's a set of strategies, and we can use those strategies to, to get better. And the first strategy, and I think it's one that in many ways is the most important, important one is that is like, you know, do you care? Is this work meaningful? Is it, 
you know, relevant. Uh, I think we have a lot of these conversations today, whether it's in, you know, schools or, or teacher ed programs. What fascinated me is, is work being done by folks like Chris Holman at uh, University of Virginia, who really, I think, you know, shown pretty convincingly that, you know, motivation is a one-way street, right? I think often we think, you know, if we just mention like Kim Kardashian, in a uh, you know in a lecture, or we you know put in a couple of you know baseball examples, you know that's what students are going to uh, f- gravitate towards, right? That's going to make that material uh, more relevant to them. But you know the research uh, shows that motivation and engagement in this side is is a one street, right? Students themselves have to find uh, meaning in that material, and and there are different ways to encourage that, but that's really the the key step. So our time is running short, uh, and I started out by saying this is not a book that's explicitly about policy, but I do want to give you a chance to think about what you'd like to share with a policy-oriented audience beyond the need to take a close look at uh, what's going on in schools of education to ensure that teachers are being taught the sort of fundamentals of learning rather than what I think happens, which is preparing them really to be researchers rather than practitioners. Um, What other advice do you have for policymakers having written this book? I mean, to me, I think from the policy lens, what really matters is curriculum and instructional materials. Uh, I think this debate is timely, given the the common core. Uh, You know, we just have not done enough to really think about, you know, what are the best ways for kids to practice? What are the best ways that we can give teachers tools to improve their craft? Um, You know, Matt Chingos and I have worked on a paper now two or three years ago, uh, um, you know, that showed that, you know, these, the curriculum uh, is largely the same price, and so we can get a lot of bang for our buck, again, hitting on that uh, theme of efficiency. But, you know, if, if most textbooks are the same cost, um, but some textbooks do a lot better uh, at others, you know, even engaging on these very simple principles, right, like interleaving, mixing up practice, uh, they can do a, a lot more for, for students. My guest today has been Ulrich Boser. You can find a review of his new book, Learn Better, at educationnext.org. Ulrich, congratulations on the great book, and thanks for the conversation. Hey, thank you. It's an honor. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And if you have a minute, please let us know what you think of the show by writing a review. Finally, just a quick programming note. With the school year winding down... The Ednext Podcast is about to go on a vacation of its own. This will be our last episode until August, when we'll be back to discuss the results of the 11th Annual Ednext Survey of Public Opinion on Education Policy. In the meantime, you can find a complete archive of old episodes of the Ednext Podcast on our website at educationnext.org.